from KQED. From KQED Public Radio, this is Forum. I'm Scott Schaefer, in today for Mina Kim. In a nation already sharply divided along partisan lines, the death of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Republican plans to quickly confirm her successor have ignited new political fires. Coming up this hour, how this epic confirmation battle could shape the outcome of an election already upended by the pandemic and concerns about the U.S. Postal Service's integrity with a political appointee of President Trump in charge. We'll discuss the political landmines for both Republicans and Democrats so close to a pivotal election. We'll get started with Forum right after this. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Scott Schaefer, and today for Mina Kim. Well, in the wake of Ruth Bader Ginsburg's death, it is hard to overstate the political stakes involved in how and when the U.S. Senate deals with the vacancy. Within an hour of her death Friday, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell said there will be a vote on her successor before the election. That, of course, a complete contradiction from what he said and did four years ago when he blocked President Obama's nominee to replace Justice Antonin Scalia. Speaker Nancy Pelosi announced this morning that the body of Justice Ginsburg will lie in state at the U.S. Capitol Friday, and President Trump says he'll announce his nominee for the court later this week after Justice Ginsburg's funeral. So this hour, we're going to discuss the political implications of all this, and there are so many, with the presidential election just over 40 days away. Let me tell you who is with us initially. It's Melissa Murray, professor of law at NYU School of Law. And Professor Murray, welcome. And also joining us is Adam Nagurney, reporter for the New York Times. Adam Nagurney, welcome to you as well. Thank you. Uh, let me begin with you, Adam. Um, so, as I said, President Trump is going to be announcing the Supreme Court nominee later this week. Uh, it seemed like he was going to do it very soon. Somebody must have said it might be a good idea to wait till after the funeral. But I'm wondering, you know, how might this current political landscape shape the kind of nominee he's going to choose? I think that he would. He's always made clear the kind of nominee he was going to choose, which is somebody who's very conservative. Um, I think the one way the political landscape shapes it is it almost means it will almost certainly be a woman. And if he can get someone out of Florida, he will. Um, I, I was more surprised to hear him say over the weekend that he would choose someone by Monday or Tuesday. I was not surprised it was delayed. I'm not sure it's as much in deference to the fact that Ms. Ginsburg is now lying in state as to a more, I think, obvious political strategy going on here, which is the more he can have everyone talking about this and speculating about who he's going to appoint, the less people will be talking about COVID. And I think that's going to be the dynamic going between now and Election Day. Well, and say more about that, because the narrative of this election until Friday was his handling of the pandemic, some of the comments he had made uh, in this Atlantic uh, article about the military, his general, uh, you know, uh, personality and management style. And so it would seem then that with all of that sort of upended by this issue, that he at least initially is a winner in, in this. Is that your take, at least speaking in sort of crass political terms here? Yeah, no, I, that's all I do is speak in crass political terms. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. No, I mean, I think that's sort of the initial um, take on this. 
Um, I think that it's going to be hard. Two things. I think it's going to be hard to keep the focus away from COVID. As as you know, we hit the 200,000 death rate today. Um, and second of all, and this is really interesting, a lot of people's um, opinions seem baked in. This has been a remarkably stable race. Um, Biden's been ahead by six, seven, eight points during all kinds of stuff that's gone on over the past two months. I'd be careful about saying anything for another couple of weeks till we see what the polling shows, but I don't think that's clear yet at all. I do think, in answer to what you're saying, is that this has given Trump an opportunity to turn the page or at least turn attention away from COVID. Watch the way Biden is trying to turn it back by saying that this court decision could result in repeal of Obamacare slash ACA and what that means for everybody who has been struggling with trying to get care during this pandemic. And Professor Murray, two names have been especially prominent uh, in in talking about who's on the short list. Amy Coney Barrett is an appeals court judge in Chicago on the Seventh Circuit. Uh, Barbara Lagoya on the Eleventh Circuit in Atlanta. She was a Florida Supreme Court. Uh, uh, justice. Before that, she's Cuban-American. What can you tell us? What do you know about the, those two women in particular and, uh, you know, what their uh, you know philosophy is, their judicial philosophy, and also what they would bring uh, to, to the nomination for the Republicans? Sure, Scott. Um, at first, it's worth noting that this particular nomination will have to happen at a rapid pace. So that means that the nominees are likely to be individuals who have already been vetted. And that, of course, is why Judge Barrett's name has really surfaced to the top. She was shortlisted for the seat that Brett Kavanaugh currently occupies. So she's a well-known quantity to the administration. She's also very well-known to the base who love her and really do want to see her on the court. When Justice Ginsburg's d demise was announced on Friday, there was a flurry of activity on Twitter and on other parts of the Internet touting the credentials of Judge Barrett. Um, she is an ardent Catholic. She's a mother of seven children, two of which are adopted from Haiti. And she's a former law professor at the Notre Dame Law School in Indiana. And she has all of the conservative bona fides, um, not the least of which is, at least on paper, a record of being somewhat skeptical of Roe versus Wade and certainly more expansive in her understanding of religious liberty. Judge Lagoya is more of a wild card. Um, she hasn't doesn't have the same kind of paper trail as Judge Barrett does. As you say, she used to be a Florida Supreme Court justice. She's a protege of Ron DeSantis, who is currently the governor of Florida. And she's only recently been installed on the 11th Circuit, but that was in the last year or two. So she, too, has been vetted by this administration. But the real kicker for her and the reason why she's gained so much momentum within the administration within the last couple of days is because as a Cuban-American in the swing state of Florida, she has the possibility and the likelihood of activating the Latino base in that state and possibly throughout the country in ways that may be, prove advantageous for the president in this electoral bid. And so the real question for the administration is whether they will put the base and its desire to see Judge Barrett on the Supreme Court against the president's own desire to see himself reelected. And so much of the energy, the animation, the fear, the excitement, depending on which side you're on, uh, about this vacancy, uh, Professor, is Roe v. Wade. Uh, this has been a dream of conservatives for, for decades now, going all the way back, I think, to Ronald Reagan, that finally they would have a court that would overturn Roe, which 
has never quite happened. It's been whittled away at. But given those two women right there that you just mentioned, uh, Judge Barrett and Judge LaGoya, uh, is, it sounds like you're saying that Judge Barrett is more of a, to, to the extent that there is such a thing, a sure thing when it comes to abortion rights. I think she's definitely more of a known quantity, but you were exactly right. In all of these judicial vacancies over the last 20 years, Roe versus Wade has been a shadow, even if it hasn't been explicitly talked about. Um, Roe versus Wade was decided in 1973. In 1992, in Planned Parenthood versus Casey, the court had the opportunity to explicitly overrule Roe. It did not, although it did hollow it out and hobble it and make it less easy for women to obtain abortions throughout the country. But the fact that Roe survives has long been a sticking point for the right, and it is basically the great white whale, um, the one that they really want to see brought down and brought down in a clear and affirmative way. So this election and this vacancy really puts abortion rights back on the table. And as Adam said, this had largely been an election about COVID-19, possibly about civil unrest over racial injustice, but now it has put abortion rights back in the crosshairs. And Adam, what do you think, you know, when you put all the, you know, competing cross currents around uh, women's reproductive rights and abortion, uh, where does it come out, do you think, in terms of like which party uh, is accrued a bigger advantage, if, if, or do we just not know? So I'm going to speculate because we don't really know, but I, I'll say this. For, for years, we've all been talking about and observing how uh, Supreme Court fights in general, including when it's about abortion, as Professor Murray is saying, have tended to be more animating of the Republican base and the Democratic base. Um, I think that this time, the fact that Democrats can say without being alarmist, right, that Roe v. Wade is really at stake here. I mean, they always say it, but I think in this case, you know, as Professor Murray was saying, it seems like it really might be. That is going to be a real powerful force in two ways. It's going to rally Democrats who have in the past not really voted on the Supreme Court. B, I think it's going to rally liberal voters who were always already wary of Biden for reasons we can talk about later if you want, just to vote for him. And I also think it's going to further intensify the gender gap between um, Biden and Trump, particularly among suburban women voters. Um, so I think that this is, a, I, I get the ideological thing. And I get what Trump is thinking about politically in terms of turning out the base. But I think it's much more complicated and not as clear as it has been in the past. And gun to my head, I think it's probably more likely that it's going to help uh, senators that are showing my age, Vice President, <laughs> Vice President Biden this time. Than President Trump. Yeah. And, and when we think of nominees helping win a state, it's usually the vice presidential nominee, not the nominee to the court. I mean, I don't, I mean, we've been through some really contentious Supreme Court nomination battles. I don't remember, can they help me win a state being one of the considerations? Do you? I think what you want to look at is less state for the presidential and more on some of these Senate races. Um, I think that some of these states where Democrats were hoping to unseat Republican senators, um, they might have a harder go at it now because of uh, this fight. I'm not sure that this fight will put uh, states more into play, but that is a classic thing of something we should wait, at for, wait on for a couple of days so we can see polling and see what we're finding. 
Professor Murray, one of the, the Democrats are saying we have a lot of options. Uh, Chuck Schumer uh, it didn't say it, but we know that uh, expanding the court uh, beyond nine members is something the Senate and the president can do uh, because it's not in the Constitution. Uh, Roosevelt, of course, tried to pack the courts and tried to push out some of the older justices. It didn't work. Um, but what are your thoughts about that, uh, you know, just fr- uh, from a legal perspective, the, the idea of changing in some way the composition of the court, either in terms of its size, their, t- their lifetime tenure, something like that? So these calls for structural reform have really accelerated in the last couple of years, and they are perfectly legal. Um, the, the Congress can actually set the number of justices, and in fact, the just- number of justices on the court hasn't always been nine, at least originally it was six. So nine is what we've had for the long term, at least it's the Roosevelt administration, but it doesn't have to be nine justices. By the same token, other kinds of reforms have been floated, whether it's term limits for justices, which would turn down the heat on some of these nominations, um, as well as proposals for admitting new states like Puerto Rico or the District of Columbia. All of them are legal, but none of them are really going to go very far um, without a Democratic president and Democratic control of the Senate. But, you know, I wanted to go back well, to... You know what, I'm going to hold, hold that thought because we have to take a break. Uh, and uh, when we come back, we, I'll, I'll, we'll come back to that idea, Professor Marie, and I need to say goodbye, unfortunately to Adam Nagurney from the New York Times. Adam, I know you have to run off to something else, but thanks for joining us. We are talking about the political implications of the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Give us a call at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. Or if you like, email us, forum at kqed.org. I'm Scott Schaefer. Stay with us. And welcome back to Forum. I'm Scott Schaefer. And today for Mina Kim, we're talking about the political implications, and there are so many potentially, of the death of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg and the process of replacing her. Our guests are Melissa Murray, professor of law at NYU School of Law. And joining us now is Josh Gerstein, senior White House reporter for Politico. Josh, welcome. Glad you could join us. Hey, good to be with you. Um, Professor Murray, you were making a point. I cut you off um, before the break. I had asked about changing the composition of the court in terms of the size of it, perhaps the tenure, lifetime tenure. What, do you remember what your, the point was you were going to make? Again, I just want to say that all of this is, of course, legal. Um, structural reform is certainly possible. Whether it's politically advisable right now, I think, is another question. And you know, that's a question for the Democrats to really think about whether they should be pushing structural reforms at this moment when they lack neither control of the White House nor control of the Senate. But my point was actually to Adam's point about the nominee playing a role in electoral politics. I think we saw this in 2016 when President Obama nominated Merrick Garland and Hillary Clinton and Tim Kaine were on the ticket. I think that ticket um, of Kaine and Clinton could have used a little excitement and a little push, and it would have been advantageous, I think, for Senator Clinton to announce who her pick, if it wasn't Merrick Garland, would have been were she elected. And that might have fueled a little more interest in her candidacy and perhaps put her over the top. And I think in selecting or looking at 
Judge Lagoa, that is certainly one of the things that President Trump has in mind right now. Yeah, although some people said Hillary Clinton could have picked a different nominee for vice president that might have done that as well. I don't want to relitigate that. Um, Josh, Joe Biden is sort of an institutionalist. You know, he is not somebody who likes to blow up the boxes, to quote Arnold Schwarzenegger. Uh, And that is something that has bothered some on the left. Uh, How do you assess how Joe Biden has approached this so far, basically pivoting to health care. And and what do you think, what are the, you know, sort of the opportunities and risks for him? Well, you know, he actually had come out um, more than, I think, more than a year ago in in one of the um, early debates and said that he opposed the notion of, uh, of, of court packing, even as it was being suggested by some on the left. And um, we haven't heard anything more about that uh, from him. So you're right. He he has it's this area surrounding the court has been one where he his moderation has been more pronounced even during this campaign than um, probably on some other issues where he's moved um, more dramatically in a leftward uh, position. I do think it's really interesting, as you point out, that to the extent his campaign wants to talk about this, it's in the context of health care. Um, while the debate among many uh, Democrats immediately jumps to Roe v. Wade uh, when when we heard of uh, the passing of uh, Justice Ginsburg, it was interesting that that was not the first reaction of the Biden campaign to, to escalate that uh, that issue. And you think I, that's I, because I think of swing voters maybe care l- less about that? I really, I really do. Well, look, this has been a long debate about uh, why it is that uh, the courts and judges seem to have been more of a motivating issue on the right than they have been um, on the left. Uh, but, but within that, it is this question of, you know, if there are voters who are undecided, uh, to the extent there are voters that are undecided, and obviously there are some, um, and maybe more importantly, voters who um, may or may not choose to vote at all. Uh, uh, you know, is this an issue which will get them out of their seats uh, to vote? And the sense that we're getting from the Biden campaign is that m- maybe not. You know, obviously it's unleashed a lot of money, tens of millions of dollars on the Democratic uh, side in, in the last few days. Uh, but there seem to be doubts at the top levels of the Biden campaign about whether this will uh, help them, as I say, either with swing voters or uh, infrequent voters who perhaps are not as immersed in political debates of all kinds uh, as those of us who do it for a living. And Professor Murray, one reason for pivoting to healthcare is there is an actual oral argument scheduled at the court on, uh, I think, November 10th or 12th, I forget which day, but it's about a week after the election. Uh, and it's looking at a lower court ruling that uh, invalidated the uh, mandate to have insurance and some fear that it could lead the court to strike down uh, the ACA, the Affordable Care Act, altogether. How do you see that, uh, you know, the sort of the issues there and the fact that it was a lower court decision? We could have... We could have nine justices hear that case. We might have, uh, you know, we might just have eight. So this was a case that actually was held over from last term. So the fact that it's going to be heard in October term 2020 and just a week after the election is a calculated decision on the part of the chief justice, I think, to make sure that the ACA is not part of the electoral calculus. Because um, why? Course, he, because he thinks it would be bad for Republicans? Or is he, or just well, because he, he doesn't? Would, Go ahead. I think he thinks it would be bad for the court. Um, the idea that a court decision would have um, so much of a role in sort of the 
conduct and oscillations of the electoral cycle, I think, is something that he doesn't want. He is a staunch institutionalist. He doesn't like to think about the court as embroiled in politics or as subjects of politics. He wants to keep it out of the fray. And I think delaying this particular argument until after the election is one way to turn the temperature down on the ACA and its role in electoral politics. But of course, we are in the midst of the biggest public health crisis that we've seen in a generation. And the ACA is a part of that. 23 million Americans depend on Obamacare for their health care. And if this law is invalidated by the Supreme Court, whether it's after the election or at any point in the future, um, those people will be without health insurance during this global pandemic. Um, of course, as you say, the real question is what kind of court will hear that oral argument a week after the November election? Um, it's likely that it could be a court with just eight members. That's not beyond the pale. We know that the court has functioned with eight members before. There was that interregnum period between Justice Scalia's death and the nomination of Neil Gorsuch. But if the court splits evenly four to four, which may be very difficult given that there are really only three solidly in the liberal box this time around, but if the court should split evenly, it would be the lower court decision invalidating the ACA that would stand. Would it invalidate the entire law or just the mandate? Well, that's the question. Is the mandate um, coextensive with the law? If you have no mandate, is the ACA over? I mean, that's sort of the point of this entire litigation. Because the mandate's kind of gone away, right? I mean, it's not there anymore. Well, the mandate has been put down to zero. And so the question before the court is, if it is zeroed out, does that mean the entire ACA is invalid? So it is about the mandate, but it's also about the broader legislation entirely. Yeah. All right. We're talking with Melissa Murray, professor of law at NYU School of Law, and also Josh Gerstein, senior White House reporter for Politico. If you want to join our conversation, give us a call at 866-733-6786. Again, that's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. Um, Josh Gerstein, um, actually, before I get to that, let me just read some comments that we have here. Uh, Mitko writes, on the political side, I think RBG should have resigned during the Obama administration and let him pick a younger justice. Certainly, there are a lot of people who agree with that. Uh, on the other hand, uh, you know, she felt that she could make a difference staying on the court, which, you know, you could argue she did. Uh, ben writes, any nominee who's willing to go through the confirmation process in this current political firestorm should disqualify them, since they have shown they're not impartial and are willing to play into Republican hypocrisy. Any thoughts on that? Melissa Murray, uh, do you think that, uh, I mean, being on the Supreme Court is something that any many lawyers and certainly judges aspire to. So do you think that you can say that someone willing to go through it at this moment, uh, you know, is perhaps more partisan than someone else? I, I don't know whether it means that you're more partisan. I mean, I think the opportunity to be able to um, have a say in some of the most important legal battles of our lifetime is certainly um, tantalizing enough, I guess, to anyone to be willing to withstand what will surely be a scrutinizing confirmation process. Um, but again, like the question of the confirmation going forward is one that we should really think about. This is going to be a very quick process. Um, there will be questions about whether or not these nominees have been properly vetted, whether all the I's have been dotted, all the T's have been crossed, and whether having this go on while the election is actually in process makes sense. I mean, back in 2016, when Justice Scalia's seat was unoccupied, the whole issue seemed to be one of democratic legitimacy, the idea that the people should have a say in who occupied his seat going forward. 
here we have the people already actively participating in the democratic process, and those claims of democratic legitimacy would only seem to be heightened here. And yet, it seems like we are going full steam ahead with this nomination. All right, let's go to the phones now. And Andrew in Berkeley, you're first. Welcome. Hi, thank you for taking my call. Uh, one of the things that I'm very worried about is throughout the recent months, President Trump has already cast questions about the legitimacy of mail-in ballots, and it seems to set up that argument of whether or not this election is going to be legitimate if he loses. And I'm worried about a Bush v. Gore situation with either eight judges or with nine judges where Trump has been able to pack the seat. Yeah, that's a really uh, interesting question. A lot of people have expressed concerns like that. Uh, Professor Marie, uh, you know, the 5-4 the, the Bush v. Gore decision in 2000, uh, stopping the recount in Florida, many feel, in fact, I think Justice O'Connor said she kind of regrets that vote. Uh, but, uh, you know, it, it did call into question the legitimacy of the court. Were they just another group of sort of politicians, essentially. Um, is, is that, uh, you know, does that concern you either in this, to Andrew's point about the election possibly ending up in front of the court, which may or may not include, you know, a replacement for Justice Ginsburg? How big a concern would that be? And what are those concerns? I don't think it really matters if it's a concern for me whether it would compromise the court's legitimacy. I think the real question is whether Chief Justice John Roberts is concerned about the potential hit to the court's legitimacy. If the court is seen as being unduly involved in either reseating this president or in um, just having a court that is ideologically tipped in favor of the president. And I think that's something that the chief justice will weigh seriously. Um, the court has a few big cases on the docket, but the docket's pretty light, all things considered. And I think that's likely because they anticipate hearing some election-related challenges as we go through to November and maybe even a cataclysmic election challenge. And I think if that does come to pass, um, whether this is a nine-member court or an eight-member court, the question of the court's legitimacy will weigh heavily in the balance. Josh Grinstein, uh, this is, you know, as I said earlier, something Republicans have long wanted. And anytime there's a Supreme Court vacancy, you know, it's a huge deal because there's only nine of them and they serve life terms. But what concerns are you hearing from Republicans about this? Well, I mean, one of the questions uh, I've heard from Republicans is uh, in the electoral context, you know, while their base tends to get very excited about this issue, uh, frankly, I've heard the flip side of what we were talking about earlier with Democrats, which is, um, again, when you look at the voters who are in the middle uh, in this upcoming election, um, you know, even the issue of the court, uh, it, it can be a very difficult pitch for someone who tends not to vote, who is not very uh, plugged into politics and maybe in some cases not very plugged into the news. Um, the odds that um, something like, you know, who would be the ninth justice on the Supreme Court uh, will play a pivotal role in that decision as opposed to far more urgent matters like, for example, uh, whether one has lost one's job due to uh, the COVID-19 uh, pandemic or whether there are shortages in testing or, you know, concerns about one's family members and the, the elderly members of my, their family and uh, whether family members have died from the pandemic just all seem much more urgent and, um, and significant in any decisions people are making. And so one thing we've heard from Republicans is um, 
that there is some trepidation again about whether this is sort of a final five-week issue that the entire campaign uh, can be staked on or whether the president would not indeed do better uh, to try to keep issues like um, the perception among some in the public that he has a strong record on the economy uh, as something to talk about instead. You know, the notion that he might be in a better position to to turn around the, the current, you know, pandemic-related um, downturn in the economy than um, Joe Biden would. So th- there is a little bit of quiet debate going on in Republican circles along those lines. Yeah. Um, here's some uh, listener comments. Harvey writes, why are so many Democrats saying wait until the election and not wait until the inauguration? There's a huge difference. And James writes, if another justice is confirmed before the election, my concern is that the Trump Supreme Court will be viewed as illegitimate. What happens when people no longer trust the judgments of the Supreme Court? And Professor Murray, that's kind of what I was getting at earlier. Um, you know, not that whether or not you're concerned, but, you know, we have the court makes big decisions on all kinds of things, desegregation, voting rights, health care. I mean, just you go down the line and it's important, isn't it, that when those decisions come down, people might be unhappy or disagree, but they accept it because they, you know, they have respect for the rule of law for the Supreme Court. Is Is that in jeopardy, perhaps? Well, when I said it didn't matter whether I thought the court was legitimate, again, I come back to it doesn't matter what we all think. What really matters is what Chief Justice John Roberts thinks we all think. And I think in the case of the election, if there is an election crisis, a contested issue that goes to the Supreme Court, he will think about whether or not the court's ability to be seen as nonpartisan would be compromised by decision. Of course, if the court is an eight-person court, he may not have the ability to bring over another colleague in order to get a 4-4 decision or even to get a 5-3 decision on something like that. So again, the composition of the court will really matter. If we do have a new member installed and this is a nine-person court and it's a 6-3 to conservative majority, again, the real question will be whether he can bring over one of his colleagues if that's something that is enough to sway him to join his liberal colleagues. So... Again, there are a lot of balls in the air on this. Yeah. Um, I want to open up the phone lines. They are open, and I want to just uh, let you know what the phone number is if you want to join us. It's 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum, or if you prefer, you can email us. It's forum at kqed.org. Josh, um, Lindsey Graham, I mean, all the Republicans were on the record, most of them, uh, four years ago, you know, saying why they were going to vote on this and why it was different and so on and so forth. And Lindsey Graham said, if you, and I'm quoting here, if you want to use my words against me, if there's a Republican president in 2016 and a vacancy occurs in the last year of the first term, you can say Lindsey Graham said, let's let the next president, whoever it might be, make the nomination. He's, he's in a pretty tough tougher than expected uh, re-election battle. We're coming up on a break, but it, it, is, is, how likely is he to pay any kind of price for that? Uh, it, it could be somewhat. I mean, it does sound like he's in a very close race. Uh, he has tried to put out some statement, uh, much as McConnell has, trying to differentiate this situation uh, from the one that took place four years ago. But I don't think it has seemed very persuasive. Uh, you know, he suggested that the battle over Brett Kavanaugh's nomination uh, was so intense and the tactics used by the Democrats were so 
um, divisive and unfair that uh, that has sort of poisoned the well here. And now he has a new way of looking at these things. But as you say, his statement was so explicit. And it's worth noting that that, that statement he made was like, right in the middle of the the Kavanaugh uh, battle. In fact, the, the committee hearings have just ended and the floor vote was coming up. And so uh, I, I would say his efforts to, to explain that statement away have yet to prove very persuasive with very many people in Washington. Josh, we're coming up on a break. So just quickly, and we can come back to it, but you know, what's at stake for Kamala Harris here? We're obviously vice presidential candidate and on the Judiciary Committee. Well, yeah, I mean, it, look, if she and if there were to be hearings, she would be a front and center and would essentially be a representative of the Biden campaign at those hearings. I think that's still a very open question. Um, it doesn't even seem that Republicans have reached a consensus yet about whether they want to proceed with any hearings uh, yeah. in advance of the election. But there's no question she'd be somebody that would be key player in the yeah. Biden campaign's deliberations on what to, to do on this. And we can come back and talk more about that. We'll continue this conversation. Give us a call at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Or if you prefer, we're on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum, or you can email us. It's forum at kqed.org. I'm Scott Schaefer. Stay with us. And welcome back to Forum. Scott Schaefer here talking about the political implications of the Supreme Court vacancy left uh, upon the death of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Melissa Murray, professor of law at NYU School of Law, is with us, along with Josh Gertz, uh, Gerstein, senior White House reporter for Politico. And Josh, we were talking about Kamala Harris at the break there. Um, she, of course, made a, you know something of a, a name for herself. She was a real standout questioner, along with Amy Klobuchar and some others on the Judiciary Committee when Brett Kavanaugh was there. But, you know, she's not everyone's cup of tea. I mean, there's like a, you know, there was some who felt she really went over, she was over the top a little bit, maybe like she was in the debate with Joe Biden when she talked about race and uh, racism and busing. What are your thoughts about that? Well, I mean, you know, I think if you go back to those, those hearings, uh, I think there are still some misgivings about what's gone on. We were talking a moment ago about uh, Lindsey Graham's comments, uh, which seemed to be, in retrospect, rather self-serving for the timing and so forth that, that I mentioned uh, before. That said, there's no question there was a lot of acrimony around those hearings that Harris tried to take uh, a, a primary role in them and, and other Judiciary Committee uh, proceedings that I've covered. And um, I think there's still uh, a feeling in Washington of bad blood surrounding that event. I mean, uh, it really, for me, stretches all the way back, of course, to uh, the Garland uh, nomination, that this has been a, a situation with recriminations on both sides. It becomes like one of these long-running, almost uh, religious battles where you have uh, Democrats complaining that the Republicans started it and Republicans complaining uh, that the Democrats started it, started it and, and each side can present some justifications but there just seems to be escalation and escalation and uh and and you do wonder if there's really any way to get out of it and the problem with ruth bader ginsburg's seat coming open um you know five weeks before a, a presidential election is that that only fuels this and makes it even harder 
uh, to try to reach any kind of accommodation, to try to broker any kind of a deal. It would seem like there's a possibility of a deal here to, um, you know, to try to perhaps uh, keep this uh, seat open and prevent sort of an apocalypse of some sort in the Senate. Uh, but, you know, who's going to actually do that? And, and what is left of uh, moderates there to make those kinds of, of deals that were made in the past to keep things moving? Um, it just seems like a lot of acrimony on both sides and no real effort to, to find a consensus. All right. 866-733-6786 is the number to call. Let's go to Tom in San Francisco. Welcome. Hi, thank you. Um, isn't it uh, possible if the Democrats wanted to play hardball to deny unanimous consent in the process? Doesn't that pretty much sort of paralyze things or slow things down to a, to a crawl? Josh? And just just um, say what that means. I mean, basically, the, the the Senate operates. If one member of the Senate wants to, like, stop things, they can. I think that has happened certainly before. Yeah, they can stop things up to a point, uh, and they can insist at various points in, on that. Um, the problem is that, you know, with the Republicans having essentially uh, dismantled the filibuster for judicial nominations, uh, I think there's less opportunity to do that. And frankly, at this point um, in the Senate and in the Congress, there are not that many agenda items uh, left. In other words, it's not as if there are um, 30 bills on 30 subjects that they need to get through. They need to get the government uh, funded again within the next nine days to prevent it uh, from shutting down. Uh, and obviously there's interest uh, in many quarters in passing some other um, COVID-related uh, legislation, stimulus legislation, uh, to extend the various uh, programs for that. Uh, but beyond that, I think that the rest of the agenda is one that Republicans would be more than willing to sacrifice in order to get another justice onto the Supreme Court. So uh, I've heard of various uh, gambits that um, Democrats might pull, but I'm not sure uh, that uh, simply withholding unanimous consent um, would drag things out sufficiently to make it impossible for Republicans uh, to confirm somebody by early January. All right, Tom, thanks for that call. Let's go now to Raza in San Carlos. Welcome. Oh, hi. Yes, thank you for taking my call. My point is that we are discussing the neutrality and how people perceive the neutrality of Supreme Court. I think that was last the day um, McConnell refused to allow Obama to nominate Garland. And I think at that time it became questionable if the neutrality of the court is really good and it's, it's not political. And today I think fair is fair if they were to nominate, if the president was to nominate, the system is that he can nominate and the Senate looks into that. But uh, the neutrality was gone the day McConnell played that game. Yeah. Raza, thanks very much for the comment. And, you know, certainly many people would agree with that. And some go all the way back to, gosh, some of the some of the Nixon appointees or, uh, you know, Clarence Thomas. And, you know, when when the whole process changed, although, you know, you could say, uh, Melissa Murray, I mean, yes, it has gotten more political, but it used to be kind of a rubber stamp previously. I mean, maybe maybe there's a happy medium somewhere. Well, we've seen over time that the votes on judicial nominees for the Supreme Court have become much closer. So it was not out of the norm to have one or two people um, object and register a no vote on a nominee. For the most part, they were pretty 
pretty high in the numbers of yes votes, votes even if they weren't from the same party as the president. Um, Brett Kavanaugh's nomination was the closest one we've ever seen. I think there was only a two-vote difference. Um, and again, that was only facilitated by the fact that you no longer need a supermajority of the Senate in order to confirm a Supreme Court justice. So I think what all of this has done is not only politicize the process itself, but also it has cultivated the conditions whereas the nominees are more likely to be more ideologically extreme. And that too contributes to the sense that the court has become increasingly politicized. Rasa, thanks very much for that. Uh, some listener comments here. Kim writes, in terms of a Supreme Court pick, Biden needs to be talking about all the progress we've made that is in danger, not just on abortion, but health care, voting rights, LGBTQ rights, etc. They're all on the line. Stephen asks, should the Supreme Court wait to hear the Obamacare case until January? And could Congress pass a bill reinstating a non-zero mandate? If so, uh, rendering, uh, would that render the case moot? Um, you know, uh, Professor Murray, w what about that notion of uh, postponing, especially if the, you know, so control of the White House may be still up in the air on November, I think it's the 10th uh, when that's going to be heard, uh, the control of the Senate as well with all these mail-in ballots. I mean, you know, if, if, if the Chief Justice is concerned about keeping politics out of it, you know, might he push it back again? Is there a precedent for that? I don't know if there's a precedent for it, but certainly I, I think you can have things rescheduled. I mean, we certainly saw that oral arguments were rescheduled in the last term because of the closure of the court because of the pandemic and then the shift to telephonic arguments. So it's not beyond the pale. Um, you know, the broader question about whether or not Congress could intervene to reimpose the mandate, I mean, I, I think that's kind of a pipe dream at this point, given how polarized Congress is. And it's likely that something like that could get through the House. But given the nature of the Senate and the investment of the Senate in the judicial nomination and the court going forward, I think it's unlikely that it would clear the Senate. So I'm um, not sure we're going to get congressional intervention to get us out of this. And, and maybe it is just waiting for a Hail Mary from the Chief Justice. All right, let's go back to the phones. And Jason, you're next. Hi. Um, so I was asking, you know, they, 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 they parade this uh, pro-life uh, are this justice is pro-life, uh, and as George Carlin said, uh, for most of these hypocrites, uh, pro-life ends at birth. Once you're born, you're on your own. Uh, do they really think it's okay to put in a justice who would take away the Affordable Care Act, killing tens of thousands of Americans within one year? Uh, Josh, what are the politics of that? I mean, the Republicans, you know, President Trump has said we're going to replace it with something beautiful, but there's never been a Republican health care plan, has there? No, he's kept saying that it was coming and it has yet to be uh, delivered. Uh, the White House has managed to tie itself in knots uh, trying to formulate uh, something that would satisfy the various constituencies, including uh, the president. I do think that the impact of this involving the court um, and uh, health care policy going forward, even if we went into a um, Biden administration, is pretty interesting. My personal view is that it, it tends to push the debate even further in the direction of a Medicare for all or single payer plan. Um, if we have a conservative judiciary that is intent on um, unwinding mandate based programs, which is sort of what the Affordable Care Act is and Obamacare, um, it actually sort of begs the question, uh, brings up the issue of uh, whether you need to move to a broader based program where basically tax funds are used to deliver a benefit that's available to everyone 
I think there's little doubt that that's constitutional and and it may get them over the legal hurdles. It's kind of interesting to see that uh, it's another way in which the country becomes more polarized, where you have a more um, left-leaning policy that's needed because of a right uh, a right lean in the courts and in the, uh, the Supreme Court in particular. Jason, thanks very much for that. Let's see if we can sneak in another caller here. Donna in San Francisco, welcome. Or is it Rita? It's Rita. Hi, Rita. Go right ahead. It is Rita. Okay, I'm calling. I was listening to your show because I'm very concerned about all the issues that you're talking about. But um, as I did this, I switched on the news feed, and I got this thing from CNN about um, some kind of proclamation from CDC that said, no doubt coronavirus is spread by aerosol, and this is the, the means of spreading the disease that we need to be very concerned about and warning people. Yeah, well, see that there's another feed. No, you know what? Work, work, Teresa. I'm sorry to interrupt. We have to take a break in just a moment. Um, But I I do want to just real quickly get a comment from Melissa Murray, if I could. Um, You know, this the politicization of these institutions, including the courts, uh, the CDC. Uh, the FDA. I mean, uh, that's a political question in part, but, you know, again, coming back to this idea of, you know, faith in the judiciary, how concerned are you about that? Well, I mean, I think you have to be pretty concerned. I mean, the court has always been held out as um, an institution that is not necessarily immune from the pull of politics, but tries at least to function above it. Um, to the extent that the court is perceived as being irretrievably enmeshed in politics. I think that is a problem for its decisions and whether or not individuals view its decisions as legitimate in much the same way the CDC um, may not be viewed as the height of scientific um, veracity at this point in time because of the way it has been enmeshed in the institutions and the administration's response to the pandemic. So it is a problem. We're talking about the court vacancy left by the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. This is a fundraising period for KQED Public Radio. For more information about how to support KQED, go to kqed.org. You're listening to Forum. I'm Scott Schaefer. And let's go back to the phones. And it looks like Donna in San Francisco, you're next. Welcome. I was wondering whether Obama could have done anything through the courts to force um, a debate or a vote, at least, on the floor of the Senate. I mean, it seems to me that the Constitution says that the the president shall nominate when they're nominated justice when there's a vacancy. And so if they didn't want to do it just for political reasons, the Senate I'm talking about, yeah. why couldn't he just say, well, look, your silence means that you're okaying this guy yeah. and I'm sending him up there. Yeah. Is there well, anything he could have done? Uh, well, maybe quickly, if you could answer that, uh, Professor Murray, was there, a, is there, or Josh, either one, is there, a, was there something, you know, he could have done, or, or Chuck Schumer could have done to force the issue? I, they weren't, they don't have the majority, so they really don't have much power, right? Josh, go ahead, Professor Murray. Go. Yeah, um, yeah. Yes, the president has the authority and the power to appoint a nominee, but the Senate has the role of, to provide advice and consent, and. According to Leader McConnell, in withholding a hearing from Merrick Garland, 
that's exactly what they were doing, exercising their role to provide advice and consent on the issue. So it's not clear what President Obama might have done. And I think anything that he could have done outside of those channels would have enmeshed the nominee and possibly the court in claims of illegitimacy as well. And Josh Gerstein, I mean, there, there, there has there has been you know concern on the left uh, among activist groups that the Democrats really haven't fought hard enough. I mean, Obama, you know, the, the, a lot of those open lower court uh, judgeships were uh, just blocked as well. And uh, you, do you think that the maybe it wasn't a high enough priority for the president? I mean, I I had read when he was president that he really thought that the legislature, the 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 Congress, was the way to do things, not through the courts. Uh, it definitely was a fair criticism, at least early in his administration. Remember, we were also dealing with an economic crisis at that time in 2009. Uh, and so uh, their focus really in the first months was not as much on judicial nominations as it could have been. Um, all this also gets into an issue of, of how Democrats and Republicans in the Senate have handled nominations historically. And it certainly is, in the, ca- is the case that in the last few years, uh, the Republicans have been willing to do away with some of the rules and traditions uh, that have governed nominations for a long time, which explains a lot about why President Trump has been able to install so many nominees onto the circuit courts. It's not quite as much a question of the Supreme Court, uh, but he has really remade those courts. And it it is worth noting that if we do end up with some deadlocks at the Supreme Court, it is those circuit courts that will ultimately have the say in these cases, whether they be on election-related issues uh, or other issues. Uh, And those are courts that are increasingly filled uh, by Trump nominees. I was looking at the statistics the other day, and you know there there are courts uh, that now lean ten to one Republican as a result of the successes that this administration has had uh, in getting their nominees uh, onto the federal courts. So it, it definitely is a an issue that I think Democrats probably have not prioritized uh, as much as they could have over the last decade or two. Getting short on time, but Teresa in Lakeport, you're next. If you could just keep your comment or, or question concise, please. I want to know how the system was set up when it started that the politicians get to choose the judicial nominees. Why isn't it an apolitical board of professionals, professors, you know, um, that does the nomination? Yeah. You know, there's a lot of traffic noise there. I think we I think I get the gist of your question. And Professor Murray, let me put that to you. I mean, even uh, even if there were such a, a body, it would have to be appointed by somebody, probably the, you know, the Congress or the the executive branch or some combination, right? Professor Murray, are you there? I think we lost Professor Murray. Josh Gerstein, uh, what, what you know? What, what are your thoughts uh, about yeah. that? A way of depoliticizing the process. Well, you know, I've never heard it proposed at the Supreme Court level, but um, at the circuit court level and for lower uh, district court judges in the federal system, in many states, at least at different times over the recent decades, it has worked there. Um, There have been commissions. I know in California, uh, there were judicial nominating commissions with some Democrats and some Republicans, uh, you know, often the Democratic senators and representatives of the Republican White House, and they would try to come to some compromises to select uh, nominees nominees, or at least give a roster of nominees to the White House uh, that the White House would pick from. There's been a fair amount of of horse trading as well as efforts to, I think, um, depoliticize or professionalize the naming of judges over the years. So behind the scenes, some of that has gone on. But at the end of the day, it has always remained um, 
ultimately, you know, for more than 200 years in our country, a, a political process with the Senate having to decide um, whether or not to accept each of these nominees. Yeah. yeah. Well, one thing that hasn't changed is we have about 44 days to the election, although it's election season, really, because some people are already voting. We'll be voting here in California soon as well. And no doubt this issue is going to loom large in the minds of a lot of voters. Josh Gerstein, senior White House reporter for Political. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Scott. And thanks also to Melissa Murray, professor of law at NYU, and Adam Nagurney from the New York Times earlier in the hour. Scott Schaefer here from Mina Kim. She'll be back tomorrow. Thanks so much for listening. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Generosity Foundation, and the Bernard Osher Foundation, supporting higher education and the arts.